you sit around over a beer and people talk crap. And out of that two or three hours of crap, all of a sudden a little nugget of information will pop up. And that little nugget of information, people start to think about it. They start talking further about that little nugget and it grows into a large snowball. All of a sudden it becomes, let's do a project. Off Gassing, a scuba podcast with host Nick Hogel. With a long-established career in many aspects of diving, David Strikey Strike was someone I knew I had to have on the show. It was a great honor to sit down and hear about David's long history within the diving world, from military diving to commercial diving, recreational to technical, and author to media organizer. Please sit back and enjoy my interview with David Strikey Strike. David, how are you doing this wonderful Sunday morning? Mate, I'm doing exceedingly well. I've uh, already been down to the beach, watched the sun come up, well, where the sun would have come up if it hadn't been for the clouds in the way and drank coffee, so I'm good. Well, awesome, man. I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast today. Um, I'm very much looking forward to this interview and I just want to open up. Usually my first question is, tell me how you got into scuba diving. Tell me about that first experience, that first breath, what led you into it. Um, I, I would love to hear the story. Well, first of all, I'm a child of the Second World War. Uh, and I should explain. My grandfather had been in the Royal Navy. Uh, he had briefly had a flirtation with diving there as a hard hat diver. Of his two sons, uh, my dad's brother, younger brother, was a commercial diver working for the uh, Liverpool and Glasgow Salvage Association, I think. On the other side of the family was a, another person involved in diving, someone whom I'd never met. So growing up, hearing stories of the Second World War, most of the family's some talk was about the Navy, about what had happened, and because of that association with diving, particularly about the divers. And, and that was further reinforced when in the late 40s, I was taken down to Portsmouth, which is a naval port in the south of the UK. I saw going through their paces, Navy divers riding chariots, the human torpedoes of the Second World War. That was quite a defining moment. You thought, wow, you know, these, these guys are really something. I mean, the equipment that they were wearing then, it still looks streamlined, but it, it was good. This was, this was really sort of something. Oh, a little later, I had an opportunity to go on board one of the X-Craft that... Uh, took part the four-man midget submarines that took part in the uh, attack on the Tirpitz in uh, uh, the 40s during the Second World War. The German battleship, the Tirpitz, was in a Norwegian fort. A number of the X-craft, the four-man midget submarines, were sent to try and destroy it. Uh, two of them managed to press home the attack and uh, managed to cripple it sufficiently. Both crews, by the way, were captured. One of the skippers of, uh, well, both of the uh, skippers of the X-Craft that survived uh, were awarded the Victoria Cross, which is Britain's highest naval honour. So I grew up hearing these sort of stories. So as soon as I was able, I joined the British Sub-Aqua Club, went along to a few of their training sessions, Ultimately, as soon as I was able to join the Navy, I was there. I signed on with the intention of hopefully becoming a, a diver. And no one in those days, you couldn't join as a diver. You had to join in some other category and then volunteer for diving. So I had the choice of being a seaman that would stand on the upper deck in the cold weather of a North Atlantic winter, or being a stoker down below in the warmth, shoveling coal. 
And I chose to be a stoker. They had done away largely with the coal burning ships at that stage, but uh, I was trained as a diesel mechanic. The ship that I was uh, assigned to was a small frigate, and they were busy putting together their diving crew and asked for volunteers. So I immediately volunteered. And at the meeting that I had to have with the divisional officer, he asked about my background, why I was interested in becoming a diver. And fairly obviously, in those days, there were two reasons. One, it was extra money. So <laughs> you weren't the, you know, quite a considerable amount, the equivalent of what amounted to about a day and a half's extra pay, uh, wages each week. And also, you got to wear this great badge of a diving helmet. And this was wonderful for attracting women when you were in a pub. So there were two enormously good reasons for becoming a diver. I, I volunteered, but apparently about 25 to 30 of us actually started the uh, course. We were sent down to Plymouth, which is uh, the second naval port in the, in the UK after Portsmouth, with my kit bag over my shoulder my draft papers clutched in my hand. I presented myself to the chief petty officer in charge of the diving school, who nearly uh, obviously, like chief petty officers everywhere, wants to know everything that they can about you. So what's your name, lad? So I told him, Strike. He said, Strike, eh? He said, Strike. He said, I've got some relatives called Strike. What's your father's name? I said, Roy, chief. He said, Roy, eh? He said, I'm your uncle, lad. You uh, will pass this course. Yes. <laughs> Wow. And I thought, well, this is marvellous. This is nepotism at its very, very best. But <laughs> sadly, I mistook what he intended as an order for some sort of fact that I would have an easy time of it and just sail through. So as soon as the petty officers and leading hands learned that I was related to the chief, they made my life hell. I had to, I was volunteered for everything. I, my my first night dive was to 120 feet with a surface supplied equipment, wearing lead boots, sitting there in the pitch black at the end of what I thought was a bottomless pit. The rain was blowing sideways on the surface. I have to say, at this point, no one was actually failed as a diver, or everyone failed themselves. So while I was down there, I think, this is it. I can't stand it. When, as soon as I get up, that's it. I don't care anymore. I'm packing it in. I'm going home. I don't care about the money or about attracting the extra women by wearing the golf. I was so cold when I got to the surface. My teeth were chattering. I couldn't even speak. And the petty officer running that evening's night dives said, well, it's too bad. Anyway, we've had one diver in the water. We'll head back to base now. So I was the only one that did the night dive all by myself down the end of this line. We got back and I said, I'll stick it out for one more day. And I stuck it out for one more day, one more day, one more day. And in the end, three of us passed out of the original 25. So Navy diver. It was good. It was uh, a particularly exciting period of time because it was when, as far as the British Empire was concerned, the sun wasn't just setting. It had just dipped below the horizon already. You know, it was the last sort of little glimpses of daylight. And uh, the ship that I was on, a small sort of frigate, we were sent out to the Far East for an 18-month tour of duty. In that 18 months, we did a, a fair bit of diving in locations that today people say, oh, yes, that's magical. We passed down through the Mediterranean, through Malta. It was wonderful. Down through the Suez Canal, which was open then, out or to aid in the South Yemen. We're diving there, searching ships' hulls for explosive devices that didn't belong there. Uh, and that's where I was first introduced to sharks and shark repellent. It was a time nationalism had risen in the, in the Yemen. Aid was a British protectorate right at the mouth of the Red Sea. So whoever controlled Aid effectively controlled the Red Sea. Our job, of course, was to search the hulls of ships during this insurrection. Make sure nothing explosive had been put on the hulls. And the uh, off-watch off crew on our small frigate, a lot of them were into fishing. And they would fish from the forecastle, and they would get a bite. And as they started to haul it up, they'd get another stronger bite, and then a stronger bite. 
And it's a case of the little fish being eaten by a bigger fish being eaten by an even bigger fish. And as it transpired, this whole area was a shark run. Coming from the UK, sharks, every single shark in the world, obviously was intent on eating every diver that they met. So we were largely sort of a bit concerned about hopping into the water. So to allay our concerns, the diving officer on board showed us the Royal Navy diving manual. And the Royal Navy diving manual covered every eventuality, including sharks. One of the pieces in there, and this is a straight quote, there is no recorded case of an attack by a shark on a Royal Navy dressed diver. Well, we weren't altogether certain that sharks were that sort of aware about who dressed you. <laughs> so he, he further sort of allayed our concerns by providing us with shark repellent packs. And these we attached to the Sam Brown harness that we wore. And fairly obviously, if we saw a shark, we were supposed to open this pack and release this compound into the water and terrify the sharks. But just to be on the safe side, they put a ship's boat in the water around every ship that we were searching with a marksman armed with a 303 rifle at the front. <laughs> and we were never altogether certain whether that was to shoot a shark if it saw it, or if a diver came to the surface screaming his head off that he'd been bitten, whether to put him out of his misery. <laughs> So we did, we carried on. Interestingly, not one of us, we never ever saw a shark oh. in the entire time. A week or so later, after we left Aid, heading further south, we were on our way to Singapore. The diving officer sheepishly revealed to us that, in point of fact, the shark repellent compound packs that he'd issued, they weren't actually carrying any on board. So he issued us with the um, dye packs that go into the life rafts, you know. So that was good. That was um, gave me enormous confidence in <laughs> everything that I was later told by the diving officer. But uh, we then got to uh, oh the Maldives. We stopped at the Maldives, and as we pulled into the Maldives, now the Maldives, by the way, as you uh, well aware, extend down from below Sri Lanka to just below the equator. And the island atoll just below the equator is Adu Atoll. And Adu Atoll is a beautiful place. One of the islands, the sun, one of the southernmost islands, is called Gan. The island of Gan was run by the Royal Air Force. Uh, they had a staging post there, aircraft uh, personnel coming out from the UK or Europe on their way to Singapore, say would stop over in Gan for refueling, just stretch their legs, I guess. But the highest point was six feet above sea level. So as we pulled into the lagoon, uh, we received a message from the uh, Royal Air Force contingent on board asking if there was a diver on. And needless to say, there was. I was told that the Royal Air Force required the services of a diver, urgent. And I thought, Ripper. I'd always wanted to get into salvage like this uncle of mine that had joined them. I thought, this is wonderful. Obviously, an aircraft has come, tried to land on this runway at Gan, rushed off the end and splashed into the ocean. So they want me to go and recover the black box or whatever, search for the aircraft. So I was put into the ship's boat. We boated ashore to the jetty where we were met by a contingent of Royal Air Force personnel, officers and senior NCOs. And I arrived fully booted and spurred with twin tanks, fins, the dry suit that we would normally wear left behind because it was far too warm. So I was just wearing a, a, a light undersuit. We didn't have wetsuits, <laughs> by the way, in those days. We were leveled. Reached the jetty and uh, said, right, what's, what's the job? What's the job? And the senior uh, officer there said, well, he says, look, there's Sergeant Smith there. You must appreciate there's not much to do on the island of Gat. So a lot of the people spend their off-duty time fishing. And they were sitting at the end of the jetty fishing. And someone told Sergeant Smith a dirty joke. 
And he started to laugh, and he started to laugh so loudly, he started to choke, so they patted him on the back, and his false teeth fell out and fell into the water. What we have now, we're faced with this quandary. We could either fly into Singapore, get a new set of teeth, which would be enormously expensive, or if you could find them, we'll give you a crate of beer. At this point, you have to appreciate, Nick, I came from the UK, learning to dive in the UK. Visibility is not perhaps always the very, very best, and certainly not where we <laughs> sort of learned. The water's cool, to say the least, colder. I haven't been exposed to tropical reefs or corals or anything. So fine. Here I was, instead of doing a salvage job, looking for aircraft, I was looking for a set of false teeth. So I said, oh, that's fine. I went down, it was absolutely crystal clear, and there, sitting on the white sand, was a set of teeth. I immediately picked them up, stuck them into the sleeve of the undergarment that I was wearing, and then the words came back to haunt me from that uncle, never, ever make it look easy. <laughs> so instead of going to the surface, I swam around. It's the first time I've ever been exposed to... Uh, tropical reefs, corals. Uh, so, yes. Does that answer the question about how I got into diving? <laughs> no, that's a great. That's a great answer. No, that and that's that. That's such a unique, memorable way to get you know just introduced to the tropical environment <laughs> to go and find some teeth. I'm sure the uh, the officer was very happy that you found his teeth. <laughs> Oh, yes, I, I forgot to add, by the way, that we were restricted in alcohol on board. So the crate of beer, yeah, we got the crate of beer, uh. but it was shared around amongst everyone. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So with your the, the military background, well, I guess let me ask a question, question about that. Um, when you first, so you, you obviously kind of knew you were going to be going the military route before you ever joined just because of, of the history of your family. How, how was that experience when you first joined up? Was it what you thought it was going to be? Was it completely different? Like how, as you know, being a young age, getting into that, how, how was that whole experience? Between leaving school, I say between leaving, I was invited to leave school. I was uh, not a very good scholar, but I had fortunately another relative that worked for the Times newspaper. So between actually leaving school and joining the Navy, which I had two years, he worked for the Times newspaper in London. I was offered a job at the Times. And each year they used to send two cadets away to Outward Bound School in Wales to learn mountaineering, rock climbing, all of these wonderful things for a month at a time. I was selected and went away to Outward Bound School. Joining the Navy was exactly the same as being at Outward Bound School. It was just an, a, an enormous sort of fun. But interestingly, at the times, now you mustn't burst out laughing here, but I was in the intelligence department, which is based on finding information, background information for correspondence. And the person in charge of the intelligence department was a former World War II Royal Naval intelligence officer, who, when I said, well, I'm going to join the Navy. He said, great, I'll write you a reference. So, so joining the Navy, it was it was everything that I'd expected it to be. It, it was nothing nasty or horrible other than the fact, actually, it was still, looking back on it, it was all boys' own stuff. We, uh, the first two ships that I was on, small little frigates, uh, were uh, we slept in hammocks. Uh, it was it was crowded. One of the guys apparently wrote away to a farming magazine to say, oh, look, 33 of us live in this small space. Here's the measurements. Here's the air conditioning. What's the actual rulings as far as animals? And the reply came back, according to Parliament, the area where we lived in hammocks and ate, slept, played cards, wrote letters home, they would fit six <laughs> pigs. <laughs> So it, it was almost a sense of pride, you know, we, oh, we've got to rough it. <laughs> yeah, it was good. But uh, later I moved around. I told you I joined as a stoker. Uh, and then I became a meteorological and oceanographic observer. How did that all come about? 
I didn't like being a stoker. <laughs> <laughs> so I was based at the Admiralty in London. We all wore civilian clothes. And, and this particular unit that I was with was involved in anti-submarine warfare. As the ship's diver, I was sent out to Malta. During the summer of 1966, I was detached from the Royal Navy, sent out to Malta to work with a doctor of physics from Bracknell University, uh, carrying out research on the thermocline, the thermal structures of the ocean. And as divers, I think most divers have experienced a thermocline, that sudden drop-off where there's a warm water layer and then sudden sort of cold and you actually go through it you can see it in some areas the interesting thing about the thermocline from a submarine point of view is that sonar being operated from the surface can hit those layers and bounce back so a submarine if it knows where the interfaces between the warmer and colder layers can actually sort of hide. And, and this is good if you can predict the depth that it's at. You can channel uh, convoys, for example, surface convoys to an area where they're likely to be safer than they would otherwise from submarine attack. And you can also specify to submarines, if I was you, I'd go to this sort of depth. And, and bear in mind, this is during the Cold War. So I spent the summer of 66 out in uh, Malta working with this doctor of physics. We had our own boat, a motor fishing vessel with a stoker, a, a Maltese stoker mechanic on board. And I was skipper of it. I had naval captains as my crew. We used to take the uh, Women's Royal Naval Service out, take picnic lunches. And uh, I was taking photographs. So we released eye packs on the thermocline itself. So I was taking photographs using the uh, early Calypso cameras, taking 3D photographs. And it was just absolutely superb. And I had to fly back to get married to Sylvia, my present wife still, flying back, summoned by the captain of our particular division who had an office in the, in the war office in Whitehall in London. And uh, he said, oh, of course, we'll, we'll send you back there. As soon as you're married, strike, we'll send you and your wife over back to Malta, carry on the good work. My immediate superior officer was really pissed that he wasn't selected to go out to Malta. I wound up in a weather ship <laughs> off Iceland. <laughs> Not quite. That same, uh, we used to carry out the same sort of research on the uh, weather ships where Russian submarines would come through the Icelandic gap. If you can predict where the thermocline is, you've got a better chance of detecting submarines. So, and then I left the Navy, applied for uh, various jobs on the North Sea oil rigs. Uh, the North Sea... Um, gas and oil industry had recently opened up. Oil had been discovered. This was going to be an economic saviour. They were crying out for divers. So I went to, fairly close to me, um, C.B. Gorman & Co., uh, the big company that manufactured diving equipment. Went there, did a couple of uh, days as a refresher course with people who, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back here. One of the people that I met in Malta, there's a guy called George Wookie, and George Wookie had, in 1956, set a depth record that has still never been equaled. Wearing hard hat gear, the standard helmet, uh, equipped for helium, and he had been 600 feet off Norway. So later, just a few while back in the 90s, George was also leaving the Navy at the same time uh, that I was out there, or just after. And uh, he, he also came to Australia. So I caught up with him here in Australia and wrote a story about oh. this 600-foot dive that's never been equaled. So the Norwegian authorities actually picked up on that. And on the anniversary in uh, 2006, they uh, took George and his wife over to Norway and put a plaque uh, on the rocks oh, above awesome. the fjord where he carried out this amazing dive. Uh, and he was an absolute character, this, this man. And just a few months later, having done that, he died. It was a nice recognition of uh, his 
life's work. So I've met a number of people whose names are not necessarily household sort of words, but uh, and all of them I found really inspirational. They were just marvellous sort of characters with this wonderful arsenal of stories to tell. So having then gone on to the oil rigs, I met a similar number of people with wonderful stories to tell. I, I was offered a job with a company. There were eight of us. There were two former special boat service Royal Marines, four Royal Navy, one former paratrooper who'd been a mercenary in the Belgian Congo, always claimed to be the last mercenary uh, out of the Congo. And the eighth person, one of the partners of the company, always <laughs> claimed that he was a failed bank robber. Now, I don't know how people fail as a bank robber. You're either still in prison or you've given it up as a bad job. But uh, Albert always claimed to be a, a failed bank robber. So, the, And the reason that there were so many military divers on the oil rigs, the death toll was horrendous. Insurance actuaries actually rated diving on the North Sea oil platforms Ooh. in those days as being the most dangerous job in the world, above being a coal miner or an astronaut or anything. And as a consequence, pay was wonderful. We used to do two weeks on the on the rigs and then a week ashore. Once again, it was, you know, it was good because we're, most of us were all ex-forces. So you had a wonderful sort of, I mean, there's no television then, there, were, there was nothing. So you'd sit around, you'd do two dives a day, depending on conditions. The rest of the time, you'd drink coffee and tell stories or eat. And some of the stories were just absolutely outstanding. So some of them will appear, hopefully, within the next year in a book. So I'm currently putting that together. And on the uh, rigs itself, it was hairy. And I was fortunate in not dying. I think in one particular point, 40 divers died within the past sort of couple of years. Um, just because the conditions are so rough down there or? Yeah, and the and the lack of training because they were getting an awful lot of they they would take anyone. There was no uh, government controls at that stage, and and that actually led this enormous death toll to the government stepping in, to putting it in place uh, through the originally the Manpower Services Commission and then the Health and Safety Executive. They introduced legislation governing how divers should be trained and qualified to the point that today it's now estimated to be one of the safest occupations in the world and other countries sort of follow suit norwegian petroleum directorate put in place uh, things with the exception of america i think america has a different system yeah most of the divers in the in the rest of the world adhere to basically the the stuff that was put in place as a result of the north sea well no that's good that that the things changed because yeah that's a lot of divers to to kind of to have to make that happen that's a lot of divers that had to go during this whole time was there any like fun recreational diving or was it all just work diving for you at this point well no it was all work because on the uh, week off that i had obviously i'd go home see sylvia catch up we had two children make myself known to my family again and then head back so it was all work but very occasionally, you'd be on a on a platform. There was a production platform, and down you'd see huge lobsters, the big North Sea, North Atlantic lobsters with those enormous claws. You think, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful to to eat those? And I very quickly <laughs> learned when you pick up a lobster right behind the neck, a very few of them are double jointed and can reach right back over and crush it. So. I always made a point, usually diving with one of the former Royal Marines, and I'd point to the lobster and get them to pick it up, and then we'd take it back up, surfacing after the dive, and have the crew cook it so we could have lobster sandwiches. And that was that was about the closest it ever came to recreational diving. Yeah. <laughs> so what what after all of this kind of what led you into the more recreational technical world 
I'm glad you asked. Staying in the UK was not an option. We decided that we would emigrate. Britain in those days offered a, a scheme, an immigration scheme. You could go to Canada and they would it would cost you £25 to go to Canada. And Canada was actually our first choice. I thought, oh, British Columbia, that's on the Pacific. Pacific must be warm not knowing how far north British Columbia was. So we applied for Canada. And all they ever sent me was how to be a coal miner in Manitoba. And I didn't fancy that. Now, the next one is New Zealand. New Zealand was also £25. But when you look at a map, anyone that's looked at a map can see New Zealand is very near the edge of the world. If you go swinging there, you might fall off. So Sylvia's brother had already come to Australia. So we thought Australia, best of all, Australia was £10 to get here per person. And I say per person, our two young children travel for nothing. So it was four of us for £20 and we flew out. All we had to do was stay here for two years. And after two years, we became naturalized straight away so they couldn't send us back. So I came here with the intention of diving on the Bass Strait oil rigs that had uh, opened up. However, here, the divers were unionized and there was an industrial dispute. There was no work for offshore divers. And all of the, as a consequence, all of the onshore diving uh, was taken up by these offshore divers that couldn't work offshore. They were unionized. So I immediately joined the union. And the union card that I got, I still have a copy of it, which I'm happy to show to anyone that ever asked. It's the best union card in the world because immediately beneath your photograph, it says, if found wandering, apparently intoxicated, the bearer of this card may be suffering from the bends and require immediate treatment in the nearest recompression chamber. <laughs> I, I always thought this, this card is absolutely wonderful. So there being no commercial work available, I was then offered a job teaching commercial diving at one of the schools that also ran recreational diving at the school it was called pro dive uh, and it was run by a guy called rick paul who was a commercial diver and the chief diving instructor was the former royal australian navy chief uh, petty officer uh, diving instructor bill fitzgerald and uh, they took me on as a part-time instructor so i joined teaching first of all uh, commercial diving here and then uh, because they also taught recreational diving immediate recreational diving and at that stage there was no PADI or SSI. The shops issued their own qualifications. So we had a four-week course that we ran. We wrote our own manuals. And it was very, very good. It, it was great. So that's how I got into the recreational side. And then I did a, a crossover, became a PADI instructor, an SSI instructor. When did you start kind of dabbling into the, the technical world? During that time teaching recreational diving, I had two initially assistants. One was a guy called Bruce Thompson, who was the executive officer of Australian Clearance Diving Team 1. And the other one was Bob Kaysen. And Bob had withdrawn from his Royal Australian Navy diving course, having had a difference of opinion. In his spare time, had started, together with a partner of his, Pamela, a recreational training organisation. Bob, who had previously been my assistant instructor, started to employ me. And Bob oh. was very keen on innovative diving. Nitrox had already come onto the scene. Bob became the first... Australian shop here to go over to the States, train under Tom Mount, came back a week later, and we did the first Nitrox course here. So technical diving really officially started at that stage, but there, there were always technical divers. There were always yeah. divers would go beyond the recreational limits, albeit using air because uh, exotic gases were very expensive and virtually unobtainable. I should at this point also say, when I first joined the Navy, I was right on the cusp of 
the shallow water diver. The shallow water diver wore oxygen breathing equipment and a single hose, pendulum breathing. Later, they changed to compressed air diving using twin tanks and a twin hose. So when I started diving, rebreathers had a single hose and open circuit air had a twin hose. You learned wearing a dry suit and when you'd arrived as a diver, you could get a wetsuit and you Look back now and think, right, it's now the other way around. You start with a wetsuit and then move to a dry suit. Rebreathers are mostly sort of twin hose. And, of course, we now have the single hose. I've always been fascinated by diving, diving history, what is going on in diving. And through the course of, of the Navy, and particularly being an admiralty initially, you learn a lot of what's happening in other areas of the world with diving. So when did you start to kind of move into the, not the other side, but, you know, because you're obviously affiliated with a lot of different conferences and shows, you know, ADEX, OzTech. When did you kind of start gravitating towards that? And, and I almost maybe want to ask before that question, um, I'm, I'm assuming maybe the, the writing has always been there because you're, you're also known for for writing too as well, right? For, for different magazines and, and, and articles. At that same period, arriving here and starting to work for, as I said, Bob Cason, there was the Dive Industry Association. I joined that. They wanted someone just to write press releases. I thought I could do that. So I started writing for them and then just writing other odd sort of pieces, picked up by a couple of magazines. Asian Diver, because most of that teaching was part-time and because my first job had been at the Times in London, that I told you, I started a media representation company here. And I started, so at the same time that I was teaching diving, my day job was, running a media representation company and we had as clients the New Yorker magazine, uh, USA Today, the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle, Business Week magazine, the Times in London, the Guardian, the German newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, Condé Nast Traveller, all of the New Zealand newspapers, the Singapore News, oh, the Straits Times, the New Straits Times. I looked after all of these and, and periodically, as well as selling advertising, I would have to do reports. Sorry, when I say reports, we would do country-specific reports for the publication. And that entailed a lot, a fair amount of writing. And with the travel magazines, because I enjoyed traveling, I used to do stories and articles for them as well. I really sort of started at around that time. And uh, I, I mean, one of the most notable, two of the most notable was Tourism Asia magazine. So I was one of the very first Western visitors allowed unaccompanied into Laos, Vietnam, traveled through and wrote articles about both of those places as diving destinations. So I did a fair bit of writing about travel destinations as well. Fairly obviously being heavily involved in diving, a lot of talk about and reports about diving. So I actually went back uh, later to Vietnam just as one of the first diving schools had opened there in our train. And once again, you get those that wealth of sort of lovely traveler's tales, the experiences. Did you run OzTech for years or were you just affiliated? OzTech started in 1999. It's a guy called Richard Taylor. And Richard used to run TDI here in Australia. And he launched this program, this conference called OzTech. It was just the name itself. I thought, this is wonderful. And I was involved. I did, I did a little bit of emceeing for the first one. He ran another one the following year in Melbourne and one more back in, in Sydney. In 92, I bought the business from him because I thought, this is just wonderful. It's I get to talk to and see and meet people and organising something. I've been doing it for all of those publications that I mentioned for a long time. It's easy. If, if you enjoy doing it, it's not work anyway. So, so yes, I started. Then Richard was also involved in the first one that we ran jointly, 2005. Richard left. I then ran the 
others through until 2013. I, I sold out of that media business, by the way. I had a, a, a health scare and I thought, well, I'm not long for this world. So I'm going to sell out my business, which I did. I lived longer than I ever thought. But going back into diving full time or the diving industry full time, I was working for Asian Diver magazine, which had also launched, writing for a number of other diving magazines. And with OzTech, it, it seemed a natural sort of progression from that. My philosophy was whatever I do, I will do, providing that it doesn't cost me money. I'm not interested in making a profit. Any profits that I make will plow back in to build and boost. And that's essentially what I did. I built it up at the conference area, having an exhibition associated with it. But unlike a lot of shows that are exhibition show with talks affiliated, ADEX, for example, is an exhibition with talks. Oztech was talks with an exhibition component to to help fund it. And, and that just went from strength to strength. And then we had people like uh, Lee Bishop or Carl Spencer, late Carl Spencer out from the UK, and they just loved it because right at the end of it, we'd have a gala dinner. And the gala dinner speakers, visitors to the show, exhibitors, all get together, have a good time, chat, eat. Organized future expeditions. Lee and Carl decided they were going to have a show. They launched then from that, still based on the uh, Oztech format, Eurotech. I sent the format that I applied. And then other technical shows sort of followed on from that. And I think now that there's so many other areas. This, the podcast, it's a wonderful one. People don't have to travel to shows to speak or, or learn or, or listen. However, the beauty of live is you sit around over a beer and people talk crap. And out of that two or three hours of crap, all of a sudden a little nugget of information will pop up. And that little nugget of information, people start to think about it. They start talking further about that little nugget. And it grows into a large snowball. All of a sudden it becomes, let's do a project. You know, I'm, I'm rather proud of the fact that with Oztech, uh, certainly from, from Richard's, starting it uh, through to the present day when uh, I, I then on-sold it to a lady called Sue Crow, who had been the editor of one of the diving magazines here. You still get people that are all of a sudden are coming from anonymity into all of a sudden stardom because people suddenly realize, wow, you know, these people are doing things that are just wonderful. And then pe other people start to approach them to ask what they're doing and how they're doing it and it's it's the beginning of enormous growth in diving diving technique equipment and i'm very very sort of proud in that regard of the people that we've introduced to the world and i say we that's uh, richard uh, sue and myself and the people running the other shows randy randy's family lee bishop now because carl spencer sadly died the people that have been introduced to the world oh gue jared their conference it's it's just superb and it encourages other people to to want to learn to dive that that's actually why I was really excited to go to ADEX last year was because of I, I was really excited for the tech talks. You get you get to hear them speak, but also a chance to like meet and ask some questions because it's usually pretty small. And no, I, I really, really get your point on like getting people in a room and just having some beers and, and the ideas that can pop off off of out of that. That's the nice thing that I've always found about diving as well. Diving and in the main are just wonderful people because it, it doesn't matter whether you swan around on the top of a coral reef or you dive to the deepest depths of the, the ocean or explore a cave to the nth sort of degree. People have this shared joy of having experienced something that's beyond the normal. That was something I always found the most joy, I think, in terms of other people diving was as an open water instructor. Every now and then you have a student that you look at them, they're a little bit sort of oh, concerned because they've never been in the water before and they descend. And all of a sudden you look through that face mask, you just look at them 
and their eyes and the just the absolute joy and wonder of being underwater of seeing fish in their natural sort of environment it's absolutely delightful Oh, that's awesome to to hear that perspective introducing them to the underwater world and and to be honest that's a big reason why you know my first question is always tell me how you got into scuba diving because you know you have some stories you have from people like oh I, I didn't think I would love it I was actually kind of a little scared of the water and then just end up seeing their progression because of how much they enjoyed it to Hearing your story, just hearing stories of even before you had a chance to start diving and then, it, you know, it kind of just led you into this path. No, I absolutely, absolutely love it. And that's, like I said, a big reason for starting this podcast is to hear people's journey and and just that excitement when they speak about scuba diving. And I mean, I know in, in terms of other industries, it's a small world, but it is so big at the same time. There's so many divers it's absolutely amazing to hear that perspective. I mean, so you're still currently working with ADEX, right? You run you run the, the tech talks over there? Yeah, next year I'm helping them organize the next Tech Talk Asia conference in April in the Singapore show. Every year, by the way, for the past umpteen years, as those that have attended will attest, I have said, this is my very last show. Next year is my very last show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, something keeps bringing you back, I'm sure. What I've been doing a a lot of lately is uh, giving talks at various uh, clubs here, not diving clubs, the U3, University of the Third Age, largely some retired people, for whom, as Jill Hyneth once said, the burning question is whether to be cremated or buried. So they're mostly sort of old, uh, and probus clubs as well. So I enjoy sort of giving talks to those people about diving, aspects of diving. Very occasionally you meet people there that are much, much older even than me, and they come out with these amazing stories about early divers that they have been involved with. So I thoroughly enjoy just doing that. As I say, I'm currently finishing a two-volume book, which is mostly sort of anecdotes, a bit of diving history, a, a mix of diving history, personal uh, observations and, and anecdotes, and a little bit of a memoir. And that's the bit that I have sort of problems with. You always wonder whether you're writing for your family and telling them the, the gory details, or whether you're sort of trying to appeal to a larger audience. So, yeah, I'm... Uh, currently doing that we have we being Simon Pridnell and myself have already put out two books Dining with Divers which is uh, two cookbooks in fact we invited divers from uh, around the world people that we knew to talk about their most memorable diving experience and then their favorite dish and how to cook it ah that's a wonderful idea so we've got some wonderful people in there, and uh, some of them are just very obscure, unknown people. Many of them are very, very well-known. Richie Kohler's in there, Jill Hines, uh in there. And the recipes, some of them, are just superb. And because both Simon and I, as the compilers of the book, what's the point of putting out a book unless you also get your own experiences and things in there? So... Both of us have contributions in the, in the book. And I'm particularly proud of mine because, to the best of my knowledge, no one has yet cooked it. Okay. <laughs> How to cook jelly deals. Okay. <laughs> well, no, I, I really, really want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I have two last questions for you before I let you go. And they're kind of, I guess, they might be kind of the same questions. As somebody that has been involved in the media of diving, what advice would you give to a small-time podcast, small up-and-coming podcast? And then that's question one. And then the other question two is, what advice could you give to up-and-coming writers too? Because that's kind of something that I've wanted to start on my webpage is start writing article. I don't really know what to write, but it's just something that I do enjoy writing, but I feel like 
I haven't really put myself out there. So I think there's a little bit of a, 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 a fear to overcome to put my writings out there. What advice would you give? Of the two, I'm probably better qualified to answer the second one about the, the writing as opposed to the podcast. With the podcast, I would say do exactly what you have been doing and are doing because it, it just seems, I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure to sit here and chat with you. Just approach anyone and everyone. Make make a, a list of, of those people that interest you. So approach them. I think most of them would be only too happy and willing. And if necessary, use contacts that you already have to intercede if necessary on your behalf in terms of approaching so that's that was the podcast side with the writing side i've always found writing it's like a muscle if if for example you're used to a particular form of exercise and you don't do it for a long period of time your muscles sort of start to relax instead of doing 50 push-ups at a time you can now only perhaps manage two writing is exactly the same it's it's a muscle you start the more that you do it the better it seems to me you become just write from the heart and and that is really the the best advice there, there is no single piece of advice that i could give other than it does require a lot of concentration different types of writing require different muscles to to do it. So you just have to persevere. Sit down, write, and then write some more. And never ever be put off. Approach publications. Draw up a short list or even a longer list of all the publications that appeal to you. And don't limit it to diving publications you might start off there if you're writing about diving fairly obviously that's a, a place to start go to those publications but don't limit yourself also then say well that article that was written for a diving publication if i change it and a little bit more explanation about some of the terms even it can be read and enjoyed by another type of publication and also now of course with the the internet online there's there's all the various websites that that welcome and quite frankly there are so many opportunities out there and too few writers prepared or willing to to fill them in, in that regard as a, as a prospective writer the world's your oyster you should just go out there don't be put off at all however space is always the big thing in the print medium for example don't submit a ten thousand word article <laughs> keep it okay you, you usually find sort of around about 1600 words might be sort of top for a full sort of feature article 700 words can fill a page and particularly if you have photographs as well and images and don't neglect the images. David, thank you very much for the words of wisdom, the words of advice. And once again, thank you for coming on to the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Nick, I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed that. Uh, it really has been fun. Offcasting. A scuba podcast.